Well, thanks, Matt. I really appreciate you uh, having the chance to talk with me. And, you know, for those that aren't familiar with Isotope or the, the suite of software and plugins and whatnot, can you just give a little background on maybe the, the kind of early beginnings of, of the company and, and where they started in terms of the, the type of software and focus they have? Sure, absolutely. I mean, if you look at Isotope today, we really have two main product lines. One is a product line of audio software for post-production, and the other is a product line of audio software for music production. Mm -hmm. Um, Music production is actually how we we got our start. Um, Sort of about 13, 14 years ago, uh, so the story goes, our two co-founders were at MIT uh, studying computer science and music, Um, and actually those loves combined, and the first product that we produced was an audio mastering known as Ozone. And, you know, that came out at a time when uh, audio software was less accessible to uh, everyone in the way that it is today. So we were really sort of out there as one of the first to make it accessible. Mm-hmm. Sh- shortly after uh, we released Ozone uh, for the audio mastery folks, obviously we, we started to look at a number of other types of audio products. Um, and then really we, we grew heavily into post-production as well as music production. Um, we introduced RX, which is really now the, the standard for any kind of audio repair or enhancement in audio post, and that's you know removing distortion, background noise, all sorts of other problems that can creep into dialogue, sound effects, and, and, and so on. And so really that gets us to where we are today, where we have um, you know one team, and that's my team, uh, dedicated to building out the products for audio post-production and the needs and the, the wants of, of all of those uh, Mixers, re-recording mixers, sound designers, folks like you know myself too, who are who are doing any kind of audio picture, uh, and then we also have the, the music product line as well. Fantastic. You know, the, uh, just to give you a point of reference, my first kind of interaction was with the um, with RX, which obviously I think a lot of people are are users of and and big fans of. And and you know, what is your take on kind of what is our flagship kind of product line for you guys that majority of people users are kind of starting with before they start branching out into the the other software suites? Yes, uh, definitely. I would say RX. Um, And we actually have a family of products under the RX umbrella. Mm -hmm. The flagship in that is uh, what's known as RX4 Advanced. Um, And that's that's, uh, the the Emmy award-winning software package that we have uh, targeted specifically for audio repair. Yeah. And that's usually what gets people in. Yeah. And what have you found just in terms of the amount of feedback that you get from your community? Do you find that you guys are, you have an active, very vocal uh, user base that's continually giving you feedback? We we definitely do. Uh, It's actually where most of our features come from. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we, we like to think that with smart people, but the reality is uh, we go to our users to come up with the ideas, you know, the, yeah. the features, the workflow enhancements, um, because there's nothing like being the person that has to deliver that mix by 5 p.m. or, mm-hmm. you know, edit that daily, deliver that television show. The, the deadlines don't move, so you, you have to deliver the content no matter what. And so hearing from those types of users really is what helps us kind of hone in on uh, which features we make, how we make them, how they sound, uh, and so on and so forth. And in fact, we have um, a product, RX Final Mix. Uh, it's our newest addition to the RX family of post-production products, yeah. and it's designed for uh, mixing, you know, to 
be on the different uh, stems and, and buses, whether it's the dialogue stem or the sound effects stem, the music stem, uh, equalizer limiter, sort of a, a mixing product. And we released it uh, back in July, uh, sorry, June, and we had uh, a large volume of user feedback and engagement, which actually drove a free update that we're releasing uh, very, very soon with a whole bunch of features simply because people said, hey, this is great, and I'm using it on this film or this TV show, and it would be great if I could do this. You know, it never ends. It's, it's a cyclical thing. What's the fine line between, um, you know, trying to help people understand how these plugins work in terms of presets and then also just kind of the manual control? Because at the end of the day, you know, you give the user complete manual control, but then you're also trying to kind of give people, you know, first step forward with some of these presets. Do you have any way of knowing if people are, you know, more of a manual type of user or using the presets? We, we actually find um, a very large number of users uh, don't start with the presets. Yeah. And unless it doesn't immediately solve the problem, they'll tend to stick with the presets. Okay. Um, you know, which, is, which isn't to say that the detailed manual control isn't accessible. It's absolutely there within the product. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the presets that we ship with are usually designed based on audio that users themselves have submitted. So whether it's a piece of distortion or mm-hmm. something that had a lot of background noise or clicks or, or a cough or something, you know, reverb. Um, we actually tune our presets based on the types of audio that people send us. So I would say a very large number of people will start with the presets. Um, and then even if they end up tweaking it, adjusting it, they may then save their own settings as presets so they can sort of rinse and repeat. And, you know, even people at the, the very top level, the very, um, what's the word, the, the, the cream of the crop is sort of the, the most knowledgeable RX users that we have out there. Um, the reality is they don't always have time to go into the manual, advanced, detailed control. So often they'll use presets as well, which for us makes makes our job pretty exciting because we have to make sure those presets sound as good as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, whatever you have time to do is, is that's the audio mix you're going to get because it has to air by, you know, 5 p.m. or... or the next day or what have you yeah and, and looking at some of the some of the the, um, the other ones ozone six you know this what you guys consider this creative mastering platform what is it about a software suite like this which really separates it from competitors what, what do you find is the major differences in terms of you know features and kind of the end result i think it it tends to vary based on which isotope products we're talking about okay. if it's um the rx product line yep. it's simply the fact that it does things no other software can do. It repairs broken audio in ways that no other software can repair. Right. Um, if we're talking about something like Ozone, the, you know, one of the creative applications, um, then it tends to be a lot more subjective. Uh, it might be a user saying, hey, I prefer the sound quality of this, or, or even, hey, I prefer the way this looks over that. Uh, but really the thing, I think the thing that, uh, makes Ozone particularly valuable is that it does have in this this one package every different type of, of mastering tool that you might need. So there's an equalizer in there that does all sorts of different digital and analog types of equalization. There's all sorts of other mastering tools in there, but we tend to accompany that with a whole bunch of free audio education, uh, which is just something that, that Isotope fundamentally always does. 
So whether you use ozone or not, you might use a, a different mastering product made by a different manufacturer. We also, you know, we have a mastering guide that's free. We have all sorts of mastering videos and tutorials, again, that are free. Uh, this past month, actually, we did mastering months, and we had uh, free webinars, workshops, all sorts of different things that we just love audio and audio processing. You know, we do it ourselves in our free time. So for us to share that passion and knowledge in, in any way is, is something that we find kind of fun and exciting, and that tends to inform the products um, and ultimately could, in some people's view, be the thing that sets them apart as well. Yeah. So I guess, can you give me a little background or sense of where we are today when it comes to resolution and dynamics? Because nowadays it seems like, you know, the roof has been taken off in terms of doing, you know, very high resolution recordings. And, and I think that plays into the quality of, of uh, processing that can go on. And we're no longer tied down by you know, cores on processing cards and external resources outside of a box of, for, uh, for a computer. So what is kind of the constraints that you guys are running up against when it comes to, you know, developing these types of plugins? I would say, actually, it, it still is, uh, you know, CPU. Sure. Is, uh, we can always, always find ways to use CPU. Um, so it, it's more about establishing the best possible compromise. Um, you know, if you're doing some sort of analog modeling or, or convolution reverb, those tend to be very CPU-heavy uh, processes. And so the way that you go about doing them or the point at which you stop and say, you know what, this right now is kind of pushing the boundaries of, of how much CPU we could reasonably engage for a good user experience. Right. Um, you know, th those things, those questions still happen. So I would say... Um, you know, it, we're always uh, developing more advanced audio processes, uh, whether it's in terms of transparency, if we're talking about a limiter or, or character, if we're talking about some sort of an analog model sound, or even if we're talking about something like RS, where we're doing audio repair or restoration, just using the, the CPU to actually do the calculations to figure out how can we detect reverb and remove reverb, for instance, all those different questions, we, it still comes down to we have to understand what machines our users have, you know, what types of computers they have, um, and also the host software, too. You know, every DAW or NLE uh, has different workflows, different limitations. You know, even though we build plugins such as AEX or Audio Unit VST plugins, there's this sort of uh, conception that well, if it's a VST plugin, it functions the same way in every host. And that doesn't necessarily hold to be true. Uh, so we also have to sort of maintain a very wide testing matrix because if we sell a product, someone might load that VST in literally any host that, that exists on the market, any pro audio program out there in the world. So we have to try and predict and plan for testing every single place where the user might possibly load an audio plugin. Yeah. So I guess one of the biggest kind of questions that I always have, and, and I think a lot of people also do, which is, you know, a new operating system is going to come out and th there's this mad rush of people saying, all right, is it going to be compatible? Is it, is it not going to be compatible? How do you guys stay ahead of, of that? How much c collaboration discussions do you have with, with the software developers for operating systems to make sure that you're going to be compatible when they update their systems? Well, in, uh, 
if, if we look at both Windows and Mac, in, in both cases, we're on the, you know, we're on the beta programs for those releases. So if there's a new version of Windows coming or a new version of Mac OS coming, we know about that ahead of time because uh, the manufacturers tend to let us know. Um, and that actually gives us an opportunity. This happens, by the way, with also, you know, DAWs and NLEs yeah. for software as well. Um, it could be a week before, it could be several months before, it, it varies. But essentially what it boils down to is they let us know, hey, a new version is coming. Uh, as builds of this version pre-release become available, they'll share them with us. And then there's this sort of dialogue where we'll say, hey, you've introduced a bug, and so now our software doesn't work, and then they might go and fix it. Or we, we might see that they've changed some sort of functionality, and so then we need to roll into our code a fix right. or a change. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's able to happen day one. So if, you know, Windows 10 comes out as it just did, we could say day one, yes, we support this operating system and move forward. Um, other times it might be a sort of a fix or an adjustment that may take some time. So it might be a few weeks afterwards or, you know, very occasionally it could be, could be longer than that. Um, usually what happens is a new operating system comes out and we know that we are almost entirely fully supporting of that operating system, mm -hmm. but we never officially say that until we're absolutely sure, until we've tested every sort of last variable, just that we wouldn't ever want to put something out there in the world without having done that. So it tends to happen ahead of time, and then we can kind of synchronize with the launch of the operating system. Um, but not always. I mean, if you look at the new Mac OS, they've announced that it's coming, and there's this sort of public beta period, so that's a little different because um, things may, even though we already know it's coming, things are changing as we go, so that's that's sort of a, an iterative process. Yeah. Um, what, what can you say just about the kind of community that you guys have? Because when I look on your website, I see all the folks that are using it, you know, from recording artists, engineers, sound designers, educators, broadcasters, and post-production, that's, that's, that's a large community that you serve, so what do you find are, like, kind of happy surprises when you find out about someone who's really using your software that influences how they're, you know, doing their work or creating their art? What are some of those instances when you've seen that happen? Well, um, on the, the RX side of things, mm -hmm. uh, we've actually seen RX become a verb. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, people, yeah, whether it's like a sound designer or a re-recording mixer, they'll actually say, oh, I'll RX that. We've even been on, on film sets where, you know, they'll do the, the shot and maybe a siren goes off in the background and the producer literally says, that's oh, okay, we'll RX that. I mean, which, I mean that, that before used to be the, we'll, we'll fix it in post-nightmare, but now it, now it feels like it's almost like a pleasant uh um, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's fantastic that the ability exists to fix it in post yeah. using RX. Um, we'd be the first people to advocate if you can get the best possible audio quality first time around. I mean, absolutely do that, you know. Right. Um, but we, so we definitely see people saying, uh, this is quite common, you know, they'll say, oh, thank you so much. You saved this take. It was the perfect take, but it had this problem and you just changed everything. We were able to we didn't have to reshoot. I didn't have to re-record that demo. Just and and you know, sometimes we'll be at events and people will literally come up and hug us or just yeah. they'll be so happy that that audio that they didn't think 
could be saved has been saved. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's pretty fantastic. And then we also, sometimes we'll see, you know, on the creative side, um, just because creating music, creating art is fun. You know, it's, it's an enjoyable experience. People often, they want to share that. So they'll release an album and they'll say, Hey, I use Isotope on this album. Or, you know, they, they, they'll send a, a copy to us just because they're really excited about the art that they have created. Mm-hmm. And then, we're excited that we were kind of included in that process. Yeah, I, I think one of the first times I ever experienced just RX, I must have been R, I think RX too, but I remember just the A, the a being what I had versus what um, RX was able to do. And I think for me, knowing that there's a new tool set out that, that is possible to, you know, come away with a clean result and without sacrificing too much on quality was was a kind of eye-opening experience because you know like you're saying you, you hope that's not the scenario but obviously you can't control all, all your environments when you are doing recordings and you know, I, I think a lot of people moving forward now are kind of walking into the, maybe their work with a little different understanding of what is the future of audio you know processing I mean what what to you is the excitement moving forward with even kind of coming out with, I mean, where do you go from here? What is kind of the next hurdle? Well, there's, there's always a new challenge on the horizon. The, the question usually starts out with us asking the users, what is it you cannot currently do that you wish you could do? Yeah. Um, and they might say, I have this fantastical idea of if only I could fix audio problem X. Um, and then we get obviously questions like this uh, all the time. And so what then happens is we start to collect examples of whatever that audio problem may be. You know, this is how D-Reverb came about, for instance. Okay. Um, and then we, we sort of, we have these research projects internally where um, we'll start to look at various different audio problems and well, how do those, how does that audio look to the computer, sound to the computer, what could we possibly do to maybe identify that problem? If we can identify it, how could we then treat, adjust, or you know, maybe even fix it? Um, so that, that will never stop because there is always, you know, every time we release a version of RX, people say, great, thank you very much. I, that's fantastic. I can fix these audio problems, but what about this? It's always like the, okay, so you've done this, but now can you also fix this? Um, and it's not, it's not that we're ever going to replace the person doing the audio mixing, right. there still needs to be that, that driver at the wheel, but that always requiring new tools or maybe tools that work better with less time or whatever the issue is that they're up against. Mm. Uh, so it, it definitely keeps us on our toes. Like where would, like if someone only has RX, where would you send them next? Like what is the next logical jumping off point? Uh, or, or like kind of transition from, from RX in terms of looking at other options in, in terms of what you guys offer? Um, it, it depends. Um, you know, if, if they own RX uh, and they're using it for post-production, yep. then it, it sort of follows that uh, the number one and number two audio hosts used in post-production are Pro Tools and Nuendo. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they're a video editor who's just doing, you know, a little bit of the audio cleanup, then the vast majority of those folks are in either media composer or premiere pro, yep. um, you know, there are, and there's still some final cut uh, users out there as well. Um, so definitely on the post-production side, it tends to, to focus a little more heavily on, on those five. Um, but with that said, there are other hosts 
uh, you know, coming into play, uh, Da Vinci Resolve. Um, that really has a, a, a number of NLE features in it now. It has a timeline. You can edit to and from the timeline. They've added some audio uh, functionalities to the timeline as well. Um, so there's, you know, there's definitely that to check out. But I'd say probably for, for post-production, those tend to be uh, the industry standards. Hmm. Well, what do you see in terms of the future of a company like this? How, how have you guys evolved to stay ahead of the competition, to stay ahead of the, what the users are needing? I mean, how much growth can you guys have in a one year or even five years? <clears throat> yeah, well, um, as a company, we've, we've definitely grown uh, pretty fast over the past, I would say, three years mm-hmm. uh, off the time that we've been around. And that's really just tied almost directly to the level of adoption that we have in, you know, audio post-production. So it's very much a word of mouth industry as well. Uh, You know, if one studio is is using RX and they'll say, hey, we fixed this problem, that word might trickle down to the next studio and slowly there's this this sort of uptick in the number of people who are understanding what RX is capable of and and what it can do. So for us, uh, you know, we definitely used to be wearing multiple hats uh, as, as a company. Um, now we're in a place like the post-production team that, that works specifically on RX, okay. family of products. Uh, we're uh, 13 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of now gives us uh, the focus that we need to actually produce even more features as requested by the users, get them out you know, in a more timely fashion um, and just kind of take it from there, really. What in your mind is is still needed? Where do, where is there still room for a lot of work? Well, um, in terms of the sort of the whole software versus hardware debate, um, obviously we still have software and we still have hardware. Um, you know, one of the the places where I think software excels is it does enable you to do things you simply cannot do with hardware. Mm-hmm whether that's uh, because the software itself has so many controls that you couldn't possibly fit that into a, a small hardware unit, or whether it's actually doing the type of math and calculation that isn't possible in the analog domain, or even with some digital hardware. Yeah. Um, but with that said, hardware still has its place. Um, if you're a musician and you're performing live, or perhaps you're tracking um, there are many cases there where you just want to plug into a piece of hardware that doesn't delay. It doesn't need to do any calculation. It just does what it does, and it changes the sound in the way that you want. Yeah. And you need that to happen outside of the box. Um, so both of these, you know, both software and hardware definitely still have their place. Um, I think where the line tends to get a little more blurred is um, there's obviously so much analog hardware over the years that we are nostalgic for we whether it's we like the sound of tape or of this tube compressor or this you know name your analog gear of choice um these days the the software emulations the, the really good ones um are at that point where if it's a, a blind test or a double blind test realistically most users can't possibly tell the difference and and you know people may say that they can um, and that that's fine. It, it tends to be much less convincing when it's the double blind type scenario. But with that said, sometimes it doesn't matter if you can tell the difference or not. You might just want to reach for a knob that you can actually touch and feel and turn, mm-hmm. or you might want a piece of software 
whether it's an emulation or not, that you can just put on a bunch of inserts and use, you know, 50 times uh, without having to, to recall settings. So I think the digital emulations of analog hardware are definitely catching up and at that point where it becomes very difficult to tell the difference. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely still a place for both. Is there any real difference between the the software that, or I mean, just the isotope suites of, of, of plugins that is, uh, that literally is a plugin with inside a DAW, or that's a standalone, just not having to load it through a DAW. Is there any difference in terms of how the two operate and how they go about processing? Not, not really, no. Um, and certainly not in terms of sound quality. Sure. Um, the, the only times that there could conceivably be a difference in, in terms of how uh, a software plugin functions, yep. um, if it's working in real time, it really, we just, we're receiving receiving audio samples, we're calculating, and we're putting back new audio samples, to put it simply. Mm. But if it's something like an offline process, whether that's audio suite in Pro Tools or you know, something else in another host, um, then the functionalities behind the scenes that the user doesn't see do tend to differ. You know, the way audio suite processes audio offline is different to the way VST processes audio offline. Yep. And that actually means that um, although the user doesn't necessarily see the difference behind the scenes, we as a manufacturer have to build around those different different things. Obviously, building a standalone application, we're not bound to any limitations that a DAW might introduce. Mm. Um, so it makes our lives easier, for sure. Um, you know, we can do more things that aren't necessarily possible within the confines of a, a plug-in SDK. So that definitely happens. Yeah. Um, what have you found in terms of, in terms of the diversity of your team? How, how do you describe the group that you work with? I imagine you all can't be wearing the same hat. So how, how do you describe just the team and the backgrounds that, that vary from everybody? Well, we have, uh, you know, I'm the, the product manager, but we also have a product designer. We have um, developers, both senior and junior developers. We have a QA test team. Um, this is purely on the, the R&D side. We also have, obviously, you know, product specialists and, and all sorts of other people on the, the marketing side. Um, universally, though, I think almost everyone at Isotope is either a musician or a mixer of some kind. That's very, um, Boston. That's very know, Boston. I, I don't want to... Yeah, <laughs> it, it definitely is. And, you know, we're, we're often out doing shows or gigs or, or performances or perhaps doing freelance, you know, TV mixing uh, is something a number of us do as well. So there's a very wide range of, of interests, but it tends to be focused around something to do with audio. So I'm a product manager for audio products because I grew up using audio products and that's what I want to do. But yeah. uh, one of the developers on my team, for instance, is a developer of audio products because they grew up also using audio products, but they just happened to specialize in computer science instead. You know, it's, the, the shared passion we have is generally around audio, and so we're never that far away from it, even in our outside lives. Yeah. What's the amount of time it takes to build a plugin? What, what can be the longest? What can be the shortest? Well, there's, I, there's no such thing as longest because it could be infinite. You know, we could never stop. Um, you, you always have to eventually get it out. Um, so... If we didn't impose or if we didn't have, you know, deadlines that we needed to meet, whether it's because users needed it by a certain day or, or what have you, sure. 
you could always, always, I mean, when we are really always developing, you know, we're, we're, it's not like we're ever not doing anything. We're always busy developing. Um, the shortest amount of time, I think, uh, from the, from scratch, from uh, absolutely nothing to actually getting it out, out of the door, that, that can still be a few months um, because it, there's everything involved in that process from first the user validation and, and research to then the initial experimentation and research, then maybe we have some code that we can start to use. So then we need to start designing it. And then we have a product and then we sort of go to beta and then that's a cycle where we sort of keep refining. And then of course we might start noticing bugs and issues in various hosts and then we need to fix that. And then uh, once that's all finished, then we need to actually get it into the hands of the outside world, the people that are going to use this every day. So it, it, the, at the very least, um, to do a really good, effective, sort of consistent, reliable job is, is going to be a, a several months. Yeah. And what, what can you say about someone who's interested in getting into this type of work? What, what's the background that you would want to see in a person? What, what is necessary today to work on this type of level of um, software audio processing? You know, we have um, a very wide range of backgrounds. Um, there's a number of us that went to different, you know, music or audio type colleges. Yep. Um, so, you know, study different types of audio engineering or production um, or synthesis or, or what have you. Um, and then, you know, you might start working at Isotope as a product specialist, a, a demonstrator or, you know, a, a customer service representative, um, or, or you know, anything in between. Um, or if you're interested specifically on the development side, then it tends to be more about studying computer science or electrical engineering if you're looking to get into hardware. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that that definitely tends to be a more specific requirement um, if you're interested on the the research and development side to, to actually have that kind of a background. Um, and most computer science courses um, in university programs typically prepare you know, a developer with all the skills and methodologies that they need to work at really any type of software company, not necessarily just Isotope, yep. because we all use different languages and uh, the, the programming languages, that is. Um, so I, I think that, you know, you, it's it's not something that you necessarily have to have an audio background for if you're a great developer. It definitely helps. Um, you know, it, it just having the passion is usually if you have the the other skills like you know how to to uh, build plugins well or, or you know how to do this or that well. It's the things that you can't really teach, like the passion um, and the sort of the understanding, the ability to say, hey this is how people are working and this is the type of thing that we need to give them to help them do a more creative, more exciting, more fun job while they're creating you yep. know, that art that they're creating. That That's the, the X factor, the thing that is not really taught. You just kind of, you understand it because it becomes a passion of yours. But as far as backgrounds, I mean, yeah, we have everyone from, you know, music colleges, audio colleges, vocational colleges, uh, computer science type degrees, electrical engineering degrees. There's people who actually maybe didn't go to university and they just, they just have been working in the industry doing this or that. Um, for years and years, we have people who played in rock bands and were touring around the world for, for 10 years. And it just, 
It's a, a total mishmash of different backgrounds. <laughs> so I guess for people, obviously, who are interested in checking this out who haven't, obviously, there's the website, isotope.com, which is a great resource. And, you know, there's you guys make it really easy for a, even a 10-day trial, which for me was the very re- revealing moment that I needed to update my RX2 to RX4. When I, I remember when um, I was talking with one of your, your um, guys at NAB earlier in, uh, I think, last year, and they said, well, you really, you should update that that's several years old i was like no it works fine it works fine and then when i updated it i quickly realized yeah there's a huge difference between the versioning of what you guys are doing so um you know i think for people who are interested in you know sitting on software and not updating because it works and it might you know might not be a stability issue of saying it's not gonna be compatible and you know i just think you guys do a really good job of staying relevant and staying up to date and you know i think that's obviously why so many of your products have um, been so successful. I mean, uh, my last question for you is, you know, what are you excited about in terms of uh, of the future ahead, whether it's Isotope or, or not? I mean, even when I think of things like uh, VR and, and kind of the direction of where audio is going, what, what are you excited about? Well, the sort of the shift that is beginning to happen is uh, really more exciting ways of doing surround sound audio. Oh, sure. Um, it, you know, we've been used to 5.1 and, and 7.1 or, you know, IMAX type um, setups for, for a number of years now where the speakers are fixed in certain positions. You have an audio channel that goes to each speaker. Then you mix different audio assets into those different channels. But the shift that is beginning to happen is pretty interesting is this idea of object-based audio where instead of taking, you know, track number two and panning it more towards the right speaker or the centered speaker or the rears, you actually take the audio asset and say, hey, this is an object and I'm going to move this object around in space. And then it doesn't matter if I have six speakers, eight speakers or 24 speakers or anything in between. It's completely scalable because what I'm mixing, what I'm editing with my software is the position of this, this sound with relation to the audience. So I'm just moving it around this image and then the actual backend technology itself, whether it's Dolby Atmos, Fraunhofer's MPEG-H or, you know, DTS, there's, there's a lot of competing formats out there right now, sort of a format war. Um, those types of softwares do the calculations to automatically scale you know, an audio mix with hundreds of objects into any speaker configuration. And it's pretty groundbreaking. It's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, I can imagine just with the kind of the future of where things are now going, and like you're saying, object-based mixing, it, I think, once again, like I was saying before, it takes the lid off in terms of limitations of what is possible. Even when I think about when you mixers do crash downs of, you know, different, um, for, for different formats of just the ease of use of that. I mean, the translation a lot of times is better, if, if not very close to what, you know, the original source is. And I, I think, you know, that's a, to me, there's, there's a lot of interest of kind of getting audience members and audio lovers and music fans to think about, you know, new ways to work with your, your audio. So that's good to hear. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely exciting. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. It was, it was a lot of fun talking. And, um, you know, once again, isotope.com is a great place. Is there anywhere else that people should check out to um, to learn more? No, I would say isotope.com is a, a great place to start. Cool. 
Well, thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun talking about plugins, which usually, depending on who you talk to, you can be kind of a dry subject, but it was, it was a great time. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Thank you.